this recording is made in the chapter of the open book. The subject for the time being is the Epistle to the Colossians. And we are considering this evening particularly the bearing of the verse which comes in Colossians 2, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now it is our custom to read a portion of scripture in this meeting, and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while, while we all read together Colossians chapter 2. There are two references in the epistle to the Colossians to the word fullness. We are going to consider particularly Colossians 2 verse 9. But we must glimpse once more at Colossians 1, where we read in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. You will notice that first of all, Christ is said to be the firstborn of every creature and that by him all things were created. And then it goes again in verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. So there's a movement from creation to being firstborn from the dead. Well, if he's the firstborn from the dead, it's very obvious he must have left the glory that belongs to him as the creator. He created all things. To be the firstborn from the dead necessitates that he must have come and he must have taken a body and he must have died and he must have been raised again. So the word fullness follows that. It follows not creation, but it follows the creator who for our sakes did something that's almost beyond belief. In fact, it's denied by so many that it's impossible. But here it is, the very same one who created visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, that very one is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence, and then, for it was well pleasing, that in him should all the fullness dwell. So the fullness is definitely connected with that great work that looks back to the beginning when he had a glory before the world was, to where he now sits, at the right hand, and to the glory that he's going to share with us. Now, when we were looking at this word pleroma, fullness, a long, long time ago now, when we opened the subject, you remember that we said we could understand the word a little bit by seeing its contrast. And in the first occurrence of the word fullness in the New Testament, it comes in the statement of our Lord, the parable, as it were, of uh, a piece of cloth that was rent or torn being mended. Just a simple idea of a piece of darning, something being done in a home for a rent in a garment. That's where the word fullness comes in. And that made us see that we must look somewhere for a rent, for a dislocation, for an upset, and inasmuch as our own calling has taken us back before the overthrow of the world, we went back to Genesis 1 verse 2, and we begin to see that there was a rent, a disruption, and that the whole purpose of the ages and its work 
traced right through the scriptures from that time until we get to the last book of the Bible when we have a new heaven and a new earth and the former things passed away and no more sin, no more death, no more curse, no more pain. We shall then have reached the pleroma and the goal of the ages will be completed. Well now that's one aspect. But now we know and we rejoice to know that that purpose of the ages could never be fulfilled had not Christ come and accomplished the work that the Father laid upon him to do. And that coming necessitated a descent that's beyond our understanding. We can only read the words. We are given pictures of that humility of his, but none of us can enter in. We can only stand and wonder. And so the next aspect of this fullness is to see how he acted. Now, the uh, chart that you have in front of you has got a ladder. And of course that immediately makes you think of the ladder that Jacob saw and the reference to it that our Saviour made in the Gospel according to John. I think I told some of you that when I was in Manchester, I knew I was going to the prison to speak to the convicts there, and I wasn't feeling up to the mark, so I had an extra hour or two in bed, and in that hour or two I thought of this subject for you this evening, and I thought that was enough, and more than enough, to give to the men in prison as well. You don't mind being treated like convicts, do you? Because after all said and done, whether we're in prison or out, we need the same saviour. And you know, those men, when I went into that prison, and they marched down to the room, and the warder left them, and I looked and saw them shut the door, I said, I've smuggled a ladder in. But of course I looked. But I said, uh, I'll have to draw it on the board. But you know, it was something that was in their minds all the time, a way to escape. I said, I can't get you over that wall out there, but I can give you something that will make you God's free man even though you're in here. And some of them are free. So I sketched this ladder and went through it a little bit simply with them. But we're taking it a little bit more definitely this evening. Because if we discover the meaning of the fullness by seeing its opposite, what's the opposite of the word fullness? In the ordinary, the ordinary use of the word. It's the word emptiness, isn't it? Fullness, emptiness. Well now you see, the glory of Ephesians and the glory of Colossians is that Christ is the fullness. But the equal glory of Philippians is that he first of all emptied himself. And if he'd never emptied himself, there'd be no clear over. There'd be no fullness. It's only his because he laid it all aside for our sake, then took us with him back where he was before. So we have, a, we have a ladder. And I'm going to look first of all, so that every one of us may be sure of this reference, Genesis 28th chapter. Here's a man leaving home because he did what so many of us have tried to do, help God out with his purposes, and his mother and himself stooped to a bit of distress, and that mother, who did it all for that son's sake, had to agree that that son should leave home as a consequence that she never saw him alive anymore. 
And on the way, he tarried, verse 11. Tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said. One of the things there is that however we don't know what was in the mind of Jacob as he trekked away from home, hearing his brother Esau and knowing that he was under a cloud, what a wonderful thing it must have been for him suddenly to realise that God himself had established a link between heaven and earth. It wasn't that man had made a tower of Babel whose top should reach heaven. That's what we read in Genesis 11. This is a ladder made by God. And God is at the top. And man is at the bottom. And angels are ascending and descending upon it. Now with that in mind, will you turn to the first chapter of John's Gospel? And the last verse is spoken to an Israelite indeed in whom there was no guile. That's a little bit of a side, isn't it? Reference to the other Israelite who had a little bit of guile still left about him. Jacob had to go through some tremendous discipline before he emerged from the Jacob, the supplanter, to Israel, the prince with God. But Nathaniel is spoken of as an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And in verse 51, our Saviour said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There's no possibility then of missing this, is there? Those very words are quoted from Genesis 28, and this Israelite would know that here we have Christ taking to himself that he was the true ladder that Jacob visualised. Well now, you know how this chapter starts. It starts in the beginning, where Christ was before creation. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made by him, and without him not anything made that was made. But, but, if Christ had stopped there, there would be no angels ascending and descending, There'd be no salvation, there'd be no fullness. So what do you read in verse 14? And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, he must have come down there. He did. He did, that's the point. He came down. And there are two texts we can take as a little guidance. First of all, in one parable, the, the Good Samaritan, he came where he was. It wasn't a pitying saviour who looked over the parapets of heaven and pitied us poor wretches down here in this world. No, no. He came. He came where he was. And then he said afterwards that you may be where I am. There's the two. There's the two sides of this ladder. So we have in John, the creator, my flesh, the ladder, ascending and descending. You get in Colossians, the Creator, he was made flesh, it says so in the same chapter, the body of his flesh through death, and he's the first born from the dead, and again we have this one in whom all the fullness dwells. 
Now, in Ephesians, it goes out of its way to explain this ascending and descending. So, would you look at a well-known verse, but we must get it again, chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 8. Wherefore, he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. Why? One thing is said that he might fill all things. Here's the filling. So he that descended and he that ascended is the one that emptied himself and then in him all the fullness dwells. But you say, well, you keep speaking about emptying himself. Where do you get that? At the top of this um, chart, I've got a peculiar word, all the fullness bodily-wise. That is how some have translated it. And the, the emphasis is that this could never have been brought about had he not taken upon him a body found as a man and therefore able to suffer. So we're going to look for a moment at the descent. Philippians 2. You remember in another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I've got it partly quoted there, I'll quote the whole verse. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, can you tell me any point of time <coughs> from the birth in the stable at Bethlehem until he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Can you tell me any time in our Saviour's life that he was rich? There's not a moment. He even said, show me a penny. And yet it says, though he was rich, yet, for your sakes, he became poor. The very stepping down from heaven's glory to earth was stepping into poverty. If he'd stepped on, upon, and sat upon the throne of the seers, if he had all the wealth that we still find is associated with ancient Egypt, he would have been poverty in comparison with the glory that he left. And so it says here, he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye through his poverty, not through his riches, through his poverty, through that act, and all that it involved, he could enrich us. This same Corinthian says that Christ was crucified in weakness. And we are directed not to the power of God merely in our salvation, but we are told the, the weakness of God is stronger than me. The weakness, the poverty, the stooping down. There's nothing more horrible in the whole of the New Testament than death by crucifixion, and that's where our Saviour stood. So we look at Philippians <coughs> chapter 2. <coughs> by the way, if I have to finish a trifle sooner than usual, it's because, well, I'm just getting over a cold, as you know, Mrs. Welsh is away, she's got it, and uh, it won't be because I'm not trying to give you full weight and good measure running over, but uh, there may be no option. So we do our best by the grace of God. Philippians 2, 
Verse 4. Look not every man on his own things. I have reminded you so many times, and yet, as this is being recorded, I will remind you once more, that verse 3 needs a little care in translation. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, our version says, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, let this mind be in you which was in, also in Christ Jesus. Now, did Christ Jesus consider I was better than he? Well, that's almost blasphemy to say it, isn't it? Yeah, that's the story. Well, you say it says so. Ah, the English says so. But supposing it hasn't quite expressed. Let's go back. Now, you'll have to take it from me until you test it for yourselves. But here is another rendering. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem the affairs of others of more consequence than our own. That's what Christ did. He didn't say I was better than he. But although he could have remained in the glory, he didn't. He considered my affairs of more consequence. Blessed be his name. The wonder of it, of course, is that he did. But the wonder of it is not, not only so, but it's recorded for our benefit. So now he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being, the word being is not the verb to be in the original. This word, hupakon, gives us the word meaning goods or possession. It means something which is your own possession. Not merely existing, but all the time existing. Never being forfeited. Yours all the time. Right through. Who originally being all the time right through in the form of God. Thought it not a thing to be grasped at. To be on equality with God. The point is, he was on equality with God. It wasn't something that he aimed at. Not like the anti-Christian uh, characters that said, I will set my throne above the stars, I will be like the Most High, and no need to say it. He was. And if you doubt it, look at John the fifth chapter, when we, we are told that God has given all things into his hand, that we must honour the Son, even as we honour the Father. So we had absolute equality here. Now then, verse 7 says, but made himself of no reputation, and it's a temptation to look at verse 29. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. It is a temptation, isn't it, to meet those together, but it's only superficial. They're not the same word in any shape or form. Now then, what is this word reputation? No reputation. The word literally means to empty oneself. To empty oneself. First of all, I'll give you one reference only out of many to show you how the word is used by the Apostle elsewhere. Romans, the fourth chapter, verse 14. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. It takes it of all meaning. You see, it's made void. Now, we've got an illustration waiting for us in this same chapter. 
So before we go further, let's look at verse 17. This is Paul speaking about his own ministry. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now this particular word means to offer as a drink offering. To be poured out as a drink offering. And you know in the Levitical law, certain sacrifices offered to God could be supplemented by the offerer by pouring out a small quantity of wine. There's no suggestion that the poured out wine could ever take away sin or redeem a person, but it was an opportunity for the offerer to manifest his gratitude and said, Paul, I can't save you. You remember he challenges the Corinthians and says, was Paul crucified for you? No. But you remember in Colossians, he said, I fit up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ for his body, the church. Not that he could save the church, but he said, the whole of my ministry has been a ministry of suffering for Christ's sake and for his people. The moment he was called in Acts 9, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And the pile of sufferings that you can gather together are almost unbelievable when you go right through his story. So he said, I, my ministry, is just a thank offering being poured out over the great sacrifice of Christ. Well, that's rather suggestive. Because if you look back to Psalm 22, 14, that psalm which is a prophetic psalm of the sacrifice of Christ, starting with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And going on to say, They pierced my hands and my feet. Saying in verse 18, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture, the very thing that they did. And saying in verse 14, I am poured out like water. That's prophetic of Christ. I am poured out. Poured out. Emptying itself. Now to show you that this does mean, does refer to the drink offering, look at Isaiah 57, verse 6. Isaiah 57, verse 6. With break right straight in among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort of these? Well, it's right in a context dealing with idolatry. But the very word poured out, used of Christ in Psalm 22, is repeated here of a drink offering. Now turn back to Isaiah 53. It says in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief, 
When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. And by his servant shall my righteous, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. So you see, this is not a strange rendering. It's saying something. If you ask me to explain how the Lord could pour out his soul, or could be poured out like water, you won't expect me to be able to explain it, will you? I can only stand by and say, I do not know. But this I know, he did it for me. Now I put the ladder so that the emptying starts from the top. That's where he was. And he comes down. Then the other side of the ladder is where we are linked together with him and we go up. So should we just do that for our own comfort this evening, even though every passage of scripture we look at will be one that we know. So we're back again in Philippians 2 and we see the first great act. He emptied himself. And he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant. You see, the form doesn't mean external shape. When it says the form of God, it doesn't mean any visibility. No external shape. The form used to be used in the days of the authorised version, very similar to the word formula today. So much so that Hooker, when he's arguing about these things, or Bacon in his essays, he says, if, if you have the form of a thing, you have the thing itself. And if you remove the form, you remove the thing. Well, that isn't true if it means external shape. I mean, you could have a piece of, uh, say, a brick, and then you could grind it to powder. You remove the form, our use of the word, but the thing's there, the stuff. But no, no. He says, the form is the composition of it, the reality of it. Well, he had the status of God. He then took the status of a bond slave because there's no special shape is there for a servant. I've never seen an advertisement in the Daily Telegraph or any other paper. Servant wanted must conform to recognised shape. Well, what is the shape of a servant? I've seen fat ones, haven't you? And thin ones, tall ones, short ones, fair ones, dark ones. No, no. It's status. So here was the, here was the empty. He who had the form of God, the image of the invisible God, the express image of his person, take all those together. Then he veiled his glory. He emptied himself. And he appeared, not as a king on a throne, not as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but as a bond slave. He stooped. The next step, he was found in the likeness of men. So much so, that a woman said, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask water of me, that is a woman and a Samaritan? Life. The likeness of men. One day, one day, we are going to be transfigured into his likeness. But it will not be in the likeness of his humility. It will be like the body 
of his glory. Let's see that straight away, shall we? Chapter 3, verse 21. Who shall change? Now our vile body is waiting for us in this very passage. It's the word humbled. Not wicked, not vile in our modern sense. Who shall change this body of our humiliation? It's the same word, only just a little different verbal form, when it says he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He didn't have a vile body in that sense, but he was a body of humiliation. And we have the same. That it may be fashioned like unto fashion, being found in fashion as a man, is he all cancelling out? Like unto his glorious body, or the body of his glory. So he stood to be like me, friend, that one day I might be like him. Oh, what a change. What an exchange. What a wonder. No wonder the herald angels couldn't keep silence when that birth took place. And so we have this descent. Here it comes. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. It was humility enough to be a man. But he was going further. He was going further. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Even, and became obedient, even unto death. Obedience, even unto death. And that's not all. For he could have died as a heroic figure. If you know anything of the Greek tragedies and the Greek poems, some of the names of those men live today. He did. They took him in a garden. They beat him. They spit upon him. They disrobed him. They crucified him. A crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low. For the slave. It was a boast of a Roman citizen that no Roman citizen could ever be crucified. <clears throat> Have you ever thought that Paul could write about his saviour and he was saying he went lower than I could ever go? They executed Paul but not crucified him. But they crucified his master. There's the coming down. There's the self-emptying. And so it reaches the death of the cross. The death of the cross. Now when he came into this world, he had two names given to him according to Matthew, the first chapter. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's one name. And then it says his birth, and the mode of his birth, fulfilled the passage that was written, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now that's what's happened for him. He's come right down that ladder until he's not merely God. He was. But he's God with us. And if he never come down to that point, we should ever need a saviour. But because he was God with us, he can do something now and take us back with him. That's what he came for. So the next thing is, I've got it there, God with us. 
Now in Isaiah 53, we read he was numbered with the transgressors. And he quoted that verse in Luke's Gospel. He said, that's got to be fulfilled. Numbered or reckoned with the transgressors. He wasn't a transgressor, but he was numbered with them. And so God treated him as though he were a transgressor. It wasn't a mere fiction. Oh, it was a dreadful reality. He died the just for the unjust. He entered into the full meaning of suretyship. The word surety is made up of the word that means to mingle and he so linked himself with us that he was treated as it were in ourselves. That's what God did. He laid, the Lord hath made to meet on him the iniquity of us all. Well now we start going up and we have to start at the very lowest rung of the ladder, friends. We can't skip it. We can't go up another step and avoid it. This is where we begin. And each one of these have got the word with connected with them, you notice. Said not. Now Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I am, or better still, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I did. I have been crucified with Christ. Well now can you say that Paul? We've already said a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. Did you say a man be? Yes. By imputation. By reckoning. By counting. God introduced the principle of imputation or reckoning or counting when he led Abraham one night to look at the sky and told him to see those stars and then said, so shall thy seed be. And then we are told that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. It wasn't righteousness, but it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Now Romans 4 goes on to say, and was it only for his sake that it was so written? No, for ours. To whom it shall also be imputed if we believe that Jesus rose again from the dead and so on, you see? So that's God's principle, to reckon. And he tells us to do so. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Reckon. So he was reckoned among the transgressors. And there must be the many. And we start here. I have been crucified with Christ. Romans the sixth chapter tells you that the old man is crucified with him. The old man has been rendered inoperative. We are not in glory yet. We are a long way from perfection yet. But that's been touched. This is the first rung of the ladder. We start here at the cross. We could start nowhere else. Like the, like the day of the Passover, the beginning of months to you, they start there. Well, then we have seen this run, and we are reckoned to have died with him. This very Colossians will stress that if you turn to Colossians chapter 2. It says in verse 20, 
Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, you are seen to be dead with him. And in chapter 3, verse 3, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That's reckoned to be so. So reckoned to be so, because why are they living in the world? Dead people can't live in the world. He's taking it for granted that it's now a glorious fact. You get these also in Romans 6. Christ dies no more. Reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. So we have another read, another statement. Not only dead, but buried. Don't forget that, friend. Some of the children. Not only crucified and dead, but buried. I wonder why that's included. Perhaps it's to make sure that we realise it's an absolute end. There's nothing so final, is there, as dead and buried. I suppose most of us have stood beside a grave. I have. More than one. And I've said to the people who've asked me to take the service, do remember this, friend. I've come, and I've come willingly. I've come because I love that person in life and I will do this. But nothing that I say or do or you say or do will make the slightest difference to that one whose funeral we're attending. When you say dead and buried, they're completely finished with you and this world. And if there's ever to be a move, it must come from God or it never will come at all. Now, will you remember that when you're thinking of yourself? God says you are to reckon yourself to be so completely finished that if there's ever to be another move, it must come from God. And then we go mess it all up by forgetting it and doing a lot of things on our own responsibility. Even Abraham, who believed God, became the father of Ishmael because he couldn't believe enough. I don't know where we should have been. Of course, he, he had a promise when he was as, as good as dead. And then he waited another ten years. That was a test, wasn't it? But there you see. So here we got it now. Crucified with him. Dying with him. Buried with him. Now the next step is not raised with him. If you speak to a person and take them off their guard, they will nearly always say, Crucified with him, dead with him, buried with him, raised with him. That seems reasonable. But, God has this present life in view, quickened with him. He tells us the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is renewed day by day. Well, that's not going to perish then. The perishing goes that way, but the renewing goes this way. Something has started, friend. There's an incorruptible seed by which we are begotten. Now don't ask me again to explain it, for I don't know. I'm only telling you what God said. I do know this, that I've looked at every reference in the Word of God to the figure of sleep for death. 
And there isn't one reference in the whole word of God where the word sleep is used of an unbeliever. When it speaks of death. I know somebody's going to tell me afterwards, what about one of those wicked kings who slept with his fathers? Well, I say, you look at the word and you find it isn't the word sleep at all. No. The figure of sleep is reserved for the believer. The sting of death is sin. Sin's removed. Comes the sting. And they fall asleep in Christ. And their life is hid with Christ in God. So that while we do not endorse the idea that a person, when he dies, goes straight to glory, don't let us get the other three that offended them and give up all the precious truth because we want to stand pat on that. That's the difficulty with this. We go to one extreme or the other. There is no such thing as sudden death, sudden glory. We wait for resurrection. But, our life is hid with Christ in God. It's a reality. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are quickened with him. And Romans the 8th chapter says, he shall also quicken your mortal bodies by him. That's here. And Galatians 2 says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Are we going to give away all that to the part of our birthright because somebody will say, oh, I didn't think you believed that. Say, well, what does that matter? Let's believe what the Word of God says, all of it, not parts of it. See, the trouble is, when we start fighting somebody else and contradicting them, we go to the other extreme and contradict ourselves sometimes. That's why creeds are not much good. The Athanasian Creed was conceived and born in a fight. So it says things that it would never have said in ordinary, reasonable quietness. So here we have then. Quicker. Now then, we can go to Ephesians 2 and get the remainder. Verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, that quickened us together with Christ. Now he stops himself and put in brackets is, by grace he is saved. He ought to have gone straight on, quickened us together with Christ and has raised us up together. But we'll forgive him, won't we, for interrupting himself. He's like the chap in the meeting who couldn't stop and he sings out, Hallelujah! Well, we wouldn't mind it once now and again, you see. And he said, I, 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 says, I can't stop fancying already. We're quickened. But by grace, he has saved. And has raised us up together. So the assumption in Colossians is, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. He's assuming that you're risen with him. Although resurrection isn't past already, it's only imputed and counted. Resurrection is in the yet future. And then he says, and made us sit together. This word occurs nowhere else in the whole range of scripture. Not a compound word. To sit comes, oh yes. But to sit together, no. This is one of the unique things that belong to this calling. And the word sit so many times means to sit on a throne or to sit in a judgment seat, to sit in authority. Not merely sit down because you're tired. Nearly every time you read of a throne and they that sit thereon, and he that sat thereon, the occupying of it, 
This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the glory. When the millennium is explained in Revelation 20, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, seated with him. But where is he? He's at the right hand of God. Well, if we sat on our faces at the right hand of God, it was what we might expect. Or if we stood meekly at the footstool, it's what we might expect. But here it says, not fall on your face or stand at the footstool, but seek it with him. And unless you believe what God says, you'll say, now this is impossible. As some have said so, so said, they won't have it. They explain it away. But here it is. We're up this ladder now, friends. We've reached the zenith of the present experience in this life. We can't get higher than this. To be potentially seated with him where he now sits. There's one more thing to take place. And that is the blessed hope of this company. So, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I think by the time we read the first four verses, our time will have run out. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth, on the right hand of God, so you know where you're seated, it's where he's seated, with him. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall be made manifest, ye shall also be manifested with him in glory. And we're back. Now, he had a glory before the world was. And that remains him. And he had the glory that's been given to him because of his great redeeming work. And that we share. You'll find the two of them are explained in John 17. Do remember that he has a position of his own by right, which no man can approach unto, which no man hath seen or can see, that belongs to him. But that which was given to him as a consequence of his stooping down and his coming up again, we share. And he who answered himself on the one side, now is pointed out by God, and in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, because he took a body and was made in the likeness of men, and in that body offered himself a sacrifice for sin and made reconciliation for iniquity. Who may we be grateful that we've had such a revelation and that we can say that it's a part of our own calling and our own blessed hope.